Good morning, Conduit. How are you this morning? Good. We are uh, continuing on in our series in the life of Joseph, okay? Um, and uh, because, like I said last week, because we, we tend to cover large chunks of the story all at once, and want you to also take the time throughout the week not to just uh, take my word for it, but to read the chapters that we're covering. If you remember from, uh, if you remember from last week, we were in like chapters 37, 38, and 39 in the book of Genesis, and it told the part of the story of Joseph where Joseph was in prison, and um, he successfully interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker that were in prison alongside of him. And, and he was eventually promoted to serving Pharaoh himself. He was eventually promoted to the spot um, of, like, so, so Pharaoh, Pharaoh had a dream, right? And Joseph, who had been building this reputation of a I guess you could call it a successful dream interpreter, um, got an opportunity to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And uh, he, he did so. And, and the interpretation of those dreams we saw in around chapter 41 of, um, of Genesis. And I just want to bring our attention back there because it's critical in understanding what happens throughout the rest of the story of Joseph. So, so Pharaoh has these dreams, these two dreams. He has no idea what they mean. None of the wise men or magicians of the time, it says, were able to successfully interpret it. In comes Joseph, and chapter 41, um, uh, starting around verse 46, um, Joseph, um, Joseph, upon the successful interpretation of the dreams, is promoted. So, you look at 41 verse 46 Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh king of Egypt and Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt and during the seven years of abundance the land produced plentifully if you remember the nature of the dreams that Pharaoh had uh, and that Joseph interpreted Egypt and really the whole world would go through a seven-year period of abundance, meaning that agriculturally they would be it would be an abundant time, lots of lots of harvest, lots of successful harvest. But then at the end of those seven years, the seven years of abundance was going to be followed by seven years of famine, and that Joseph's recommendation to Pharaoh was, "Look, man." You've got to put someone in charge of the affairs of Egypt here right at the beginning of the first seven years so that we're prepared for the next seven years. And so um, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Genesis chapter 41 verse 48 Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. 
In each city he put food grown in the fields surrounding it. And Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. So Joseph apparently correctly interpreted these dreams and these seven years of abundance came and and he just stockpiled and stockpiled and stockpiled and stockpiled all of this food and then of course like he said it would in verse 53 the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began just of, just as Joseph has had said there was famine in all the other lands but in the whole land of Egypt there was food when all Egypt began to feel the famine the people cried to Pharaoh for food and then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you to do. And then when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all of the world. So Joseph's preparation, his insight... His discernment prepared not only Egypt, but it became a storehouse or a place for other nations to come and buy grain during the famine. Now, the interesting part of what happens next is that the, kind of the, focus, uh, the focus takes a, a, a turn because no longer now is the story about Joseph's good planning and his good management and the abundance of grain and the selling to other countries. Now it's like almost like a flashback moment, right? Because it says the whole world was in lack of food. And so send people to the whole, like other countries would send people to Egypt to buy food from Joseph and take it back. Well, wouldn't you know that one of the people, one of the families that needed to buy grain or needed to buy food during this famine was Joseph's family. Now, if you weren't here for the first week of the story of Joseph or you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, we'll give you, um, we'll give you a little bit of a rewind of what happened. Um, Back in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph's 11 brothers decided that, um, that, that they, were, they were sick of Joseph. They were, they were done spending time with this bratty kid that was the favorite of the father and that kind of rubbed that fact in their face. Um, and so while they were out tending the fields one day, um, they remarked here um, in uh, Genesis chapter 37, uh, starting at verse 26, Judah, one of the brothers, said to his other brothers, what will we gain if we kill Joseph and cover up his blood? Come, instead, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all. After all, he is our brother. 
our own flesh and blood. So the rest of his brothers agreed. And so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern that they had thrown him in and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So the reason that Joseph was in Egypt to begin with during this whole thing is not because he was like born and raised there and rose through the ranks of Egyptian leadership so much so to the point that he proved himself to Pharaoh and now was in charge of all the agricultural abundance in the country, but that because his brothers, his own flesh and blood, hated him so much that they sold him into slavery and he was shipped off to Egypt. Now, presumably, I don't know if they forgot about him or... um, or didn't think that they would ever come in contact with him again, when the famine hits, there's only one place in all of the world that has, the known world that has food, and that's the very place that they sold their brother to. And so Jacob, Joseph, and all of his brother's uh, father said, hey, uh, sons, go to Egypt. We need food. Go and buy us some food. And so, long story short... They walk into the court of Joseph, ready to get some food, and a grand reunion happens, right? Hugs, kisses, it's been so long since we've seen you, so happy to see you again, and you're okay. That's not really what happened. Um, Maybe we would expect that after such a long period of time. Maybe we would expect it as just like a relief. Oh, it's Joseph that we're buying food from. Maybe we would expect some type of grand reunion or grand entrance or like um, Hallmark style movie. Like, you know, get back together. But it's not what happened. If you turn to Genesis chapter 42, you'll see that the brothers, when they were approached by Joseph in, uh, while trying to buy food, they did not recognize their brother now presumably he had grown much older right he was probably um dressed in uh somewhat royal clothes from the egyptian culture right not looking like the hebrew shepherd that they threw in the well and sold off uh, as a slave long ago he was a much much different person but joseph recognized his brothers Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'd be all about playing games with my brothers in this moment. And as the story goes, it's exactly what Joseph does for the next several chapters. But not without some drama mixed in there. How did Joseph, we know that Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him, but how did Joseph even in the midst of knowing who they were and that his identity was still disclosed. It says in uh, chapter 42, uh, verse 6, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Seems like Joseph's dreams 
from the beginning of the story of Joseph that his brothers would bow down to him indeed did come true in time, right? Took a little bit of time. Verse 7, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he treated them, spoke to them harshly. Where do you come from, he said. Now, Joseph, for the next three chapters, really, all of chapter 42, all of chapter 43, all of chapter 44, numerous different separate interactions with his brothers continued to lead them on, continued to play, to play games with them, sent grain back to, um, to Israel with them, but returned the money, right? Hid valuable items in the bags of grain to make his brothers feel like they had accidentally cheated him, right? Played, played some mind games with him, kept one of his older brothers in captivity in Egypt until they promised to bring back the younger brother from Egypt on their next trip. Suffice to say, I'm sure that Joseph was having a good time putting his family through a little bit of grief. Now, we don't know exactly why, but I think we can all come to at least some understanding that um, Joseph had probably been waiting for this moment, anticipating this moment for a long, long time. Thinking about how it would happen. How, how in the world will I interact with my brothers? How will I interact with my family if or when I ever see them again? I mean, and to be honest, Joseph was a grown man now, right? He had grown, he had had lots of life experience, he had been in jail, he had been in Potiphar's house, he had been um, promoted to the ranks, he had been given a wife, he had two sons, lots and lots and lots of life had passed by since Joseph's brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. You would think that there would at least be some like, okay, you know, let bygones be bygones. Your brothers are here now. They're in need of food. Let's embrace them and welcome them and let the, let the relationship be restored. Now that we're all older and understand and like, it's fine now, right? It's fine. I'm fine. I am not upset about the way my brothers treated me at all, right? I kind of get this underlying sense that there's this toxicity, this poison bubbling to the surface of Joseph's demeanor with his brothers as he sees them and all of the betrayal, all of the hurt, all of the past comes back and floods over him. There is a classic belief or a saying, I guess you'll say, um, that says that time heals all wounds. 
time heals all wounds. Just get, just make a little, just get a little distance. Let time go by. You know, let let everyone in the situation uh, mature. Let 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 bygones be bygones. Time time will heal it. Time time will set us free. I don't know if you've ever been really, really sick or had, uh, like, maybe a, um, a, my, my, my middle daughter uh, has had a, a series of surgeries in her life. And one, one surgery in particular was pretty invasive and pretty, um, pretty extensive. And um, uh, she had a, uh, a wound on her, uh, the, the surgical wound on her stomach. And she was in the hospital for, oh, I'd say, five days after the surgery. And uh, they were watching and watching and just making sure everything was okay. And then we sent her home. And then um, it was, was like almost 24 hours later um, to the minute where we had, we had gotten her up from, um, from sleeping at night. And through the, through the big bandage, through her onesie, through her pajamas, right, we could, we could the, the, the pus from that wound being infected had soaked out and soaked all of it, right? Now, well, you know, time will heal this. We just got to give it some time, right? Just, um couple days out from surgery she'll be she'll be okay just let let that hurt let that wound let that infection fester and eventually it will heal itself listen sometimes when hurt is foisted upon us time does nothing but bring increased infection When we experience hurt, when we experience betrayal, when we are, when we are hurt to our very, the very core of our being, separation and time does not heal. It only gives more opportunity for infection to build. For that, for that poison to take root in our flesh. I mean, if you look at Joseph's life, look at Joseph's life since he was sold into slavery. And sure, there was some downs, right? Like when he was falsely accused of trying to sleep with Potiphar's wife and put into prison for a few years. But there was a lot of as well, right? Two separate times was he put in places of prestige and prominence and importance and success and money and riches, right? Power. He had, Joseph had all of the things that most people would consider to be like, good. Like, yeah, we, we want, it would be great to have a, a position of, a, a, of authority and leadership and power and in and of itself, that, that, that is a good thing. And to be a wealthy person, yes, it's just, that's, not a, that's not 
That's not arbitrarily a bad thing. To have a beautiful family, to have kids, yeah, a good thing. To have a, a great job, a good thing, a good thing, a good thing. But, but oftentimes we, we confuse, right, the, the blessing of our outer circumstances with, with being enough to heal our inner hearts, right? I've been hurt, I've been wounded, I've been betrayed. Man, so I just make some space between me and that hurt and like just get a good job and have a good family and earn enough money and be in a position of power and be successful and maybe that hurt won't hurt as much. Maybe it'll be a little bit of an antibiotic to the infection that's growing in my soul. But listen, I'm here to tell you that that, that outer success never heals inner hurt. There is, no, there is no outer blessing so great that it will successfully heal an inner hurt. The best thing that it could possibly do would be to temporarily conceal it, Right? Joseph's hurt was concealed under this veil of really busy at work, preparing for the famine. Joseph's hurt was temporarily concealed by, man, everyone's coming to me. Lots of power, lots of prominence, lots of authority. Joseph's inner hurt was temporarily concealed with building his own family, right? Had two sons. With being in Pharaoh's court, Joseph's hurt temporarily was concealed by his rise even in Potiphar's own home. But concealing did not mean eliminating, did it? Because as soon as he saw his brothers, it's like he was, like all of that hurt, the veil just got ripped off. Of all of that hurt. And it revealed this big festering wound that had just grown and grown and grown. And you begin to realize for the first moment that the time and like all the success that Joseph had between his betrayal and between this moment had not healed it at all. That it was still there. That it was just like ready and waiting, and willing, right? It's like, it's like all of that hurt went into the basement of his soul and just lifted weights, right? Stronger, 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 stronger until the basement door got opened and then it came up out like, and all of that hurt like this steroid rage-induced monster, right, that had been waiting to be released. Listen, when we, when you and I, when we refuse to face, when we refuse to deal with and work through the things and people that have hurt us, they only get worse. They never get better. They do not get better on their own. 
When we refuse to deal with the things and people that have hurt us in the most significant way, they will not get better on their own. You can conceal it. You can hide it. You can run away with it. You can think that if I just make enough space and time between it and me, that it won't hurt me anymore. But eventually, right, eventually that band-aid will come off and it will be revealed as this festering wound that is infected and stronger than it ever has been before. And you see what often happens, right, What often happens when we refuse to deal with it, refuse to face it in the, as close to when it actually happened as possible, is that we begin to build an identity for ourselves that is, that revolves around and is centered around and defined by that hurt. That, that that no longer, now no longer do, are, are we defined and no, no longer is our life purposed by our creator who has given us life. But now, but now we have this wound, right? And we haven't dealt with it properly. And so it becomes so central to what we feel and how we think and who we are that the rest of life's circumstances begin to be like affected and defined by it, right? The wound metastasizes in us. And passes to other areas. The infection goes through emotionally and mentally and spiritually to other areas of our lives. And we pass that poison on in a really, really unhealthy way. And if you think that Joseph somehow compartmentalized his pain. Compartmentalized the betrayal, the hurt. Was able to deal with it separate from his his family, or separate from the, all you need to do is look at a four. Joseph was reunited unexpectedly his brothers. See what he named his son. You think that Joseph, Joseph allowed the hurt and betrayal to so radically define his direction in life, his identity, that in um, Genesis 41, right? Verse 51, before Joseph had any idea that his brothers were coming, right? The wound bubbled up. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and my father's household. So convinced was Joseph that that he named his firstborn son hey, man, I just forgot my father's household. I needed to be dealing with any of that. So, son, here's your identity, right? Here's your future. You are a constant reminder about how I just, rather than dealing with it, I'm just going to choose to forget about it. 
I'm going to walk away. Now, how easy is it to forget about something like that? It's, it's, a, it's a lie, right? It's a farce. We don't, we don't just forget about those things. Ta- we can't create enough space and time between us and our hurts in order for it to, uh, like, for it to really be healed in us. Because the band-aid always comes off in some way, in some unexpected way, shape, or form. I hate to use the word triggered because it's like a like word these days, right? Like, but something triggers you. Something snaps you back to that moment where that hurt occurred. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter if it was 20 seconds ago or 20 years ago, your whole being is brought back into that moment where you were betrayed, where you were hurt, where something was done to you. And for Joseph, we see that all throughout chapter 41, 42, 43, and 44, that, that after that first time of seeing his brothers, he, he treated them harshly, he played mind games with them, he kept one in captivity, but then as soon as they were gone, he would go into his courts, and it says that he would weep and cry uncontrollably at seeing his brothers, but hey, he's fine. I'm good, all right? Money, success, power, that's all I really need. Like, I'll, I'll show them the way to get through this is to become successful. The, the way to heal my hurt, the way to heal my heart, the way to, for me to get past these wounds is just to become a really successful person. That's what I'll do. That's how I'll get through it. Now, unfortunately, healing does not come unless we face the things that have injured us. The things that have hurt us. Now, what I will say here is that I I want you to understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Okay? I want you to understand that um, running away from things that hurt you or people that hurt you will not create healing. I also want you to say, or I also want to say, is that um, I, I understand that it's next to impossible to nuance that enough to encompass every hurt, every pain, every relationship every circumstance that you have gone through that may have hurt you. There are, there are deeply significant wounds and hurt and pain and relationships that, um, that sometimes cannot be restored on this side of heaven. There, 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 is, there is pain that goes down deep into the heart of who we are. And what I am not saying is that it is incumbent upon you to enter back into toxic situations, toxic relationships, get involved with people who only seek to do you harm, have no capacity for restoration or relationship. What I am saying is that 
you, we, you and I must deal with and face the, the percentage of the issue that you and I own. We must be willing to be, to be brave and courageous, to stand strong and tall, sometimes with the arm-in-arm support of our gospel community to help us process through what has been done to us or what we have done to others in order to see that wound begin to be healed. Paul says in his uh, letter to the Romans, he says in Romans uh, chapter 12, He's honest about uh, he's honest about like the the nature of hurt and pain and brokenness and relationships, right? And uh, he says uh, he says this in verse seventeen: Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. In verse eighteen of Romans chapter twelve, he says this: If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you live at peace with everyone if it is possible as far as it depends upon you live at peace with everyone who are you responsible for you are responsible for you. We cannot take responsibility. We cannot take ownership of others' choices, the decisions that they make, the way in which they receive or interact with us. We cannot control others. We can barely control ourselves, right? As far as it depends upon you. In as much as you are able. With all the fiber of your being. With every ounce of courage that you can gather. With every awkward conversation or hurtful moment. Or reliving of pain. As far as it depends upon you. Pursue peace. Get after it. Live for it. Work for it. Because what happens here is this, is that this is not just an example in the life of Jesus, or in the life of Joseph. But, but Jesus says some really similar things about what, I guess you could generally call it tension, or pain, or hurt, or woundedness does when it goes unaddressed. And uh, he says this in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, uh, we're going to reference the, uh, Matthew's account of that. Matthew chapter 5. And he says kind of two different things here. right? He, he, first, he first talks about the, the relationship and the tension and the hurt and the anxiety. Um, the woundedness that can happen between um, between brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Meaning if, uh, if, if Aldo and I get in a disagreement or something, or there's some 
woundedness or pain or tension. There's not, all right? But if there was, right? And then in another section, he talks about, like, well, someone out, maybe outside of the family of faith. Like, like you're, not, you're not living in community with them, but they're, they're described as an adversary in your life. So we're going to look at both, both like, um, options. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I, 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 don't, I don't know if you hear this, right? I don't know if you get this, but Jesus himself is saying that, that above the act of worship is the responsibility for relational harmony. More, more important than bringing what you have to offer to God to the altar. More important than that is the responsibility to seek peace with those you are in Christian fellowship with. That is like mind-blowing. How many times have you lived at enmity with the people around you in this room? That's hard, that's hard right? I mean, that's, that's like, that's deep. That, that calls us to a level of gospel community intimacy that not, that not many churches or people can stomach. But it's gospel. It is true. It is right. And then Jesus goes on in verse 25 and this really gets to our point from this morning. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into, the, into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What is the point here? The point is not that you only have to um, like work for peace with those who are take, trying to take you to court. right? The point here is that um, tension left undealt with never de-escalates. It always escalates. Tension, like, tension woundedness, difficulty, problems, it, it, they, they never solve themselves with just time. They tend to escalate in severity rather than de-escalate in severity, right? How many times does something happen, right? And, and instead, of, instead of like going and dealing with it with the person, you create this inner narrative in your head, Right? Because they did this, and because they said this, that means they're like that. This is what they think of me. This is who they're talking to. This is what's going to happen. And then 
and then the, the false narrative that we create ends up becoming for us what we believe is actually happening. Because we, we haven't faced it and dealt with it right at the beginning, it naturally escalates rather than de-escalates. And so when we say that it is so important that when there is opposition or tension or pain or woundedness in life or in relationship, that it is imperative that as far as it depends upon us, we seek peace. We seek healing. We seek understanding. And like I said, I, I, I want this to be abundantly clear. Some family situations, relationships, some, some wounding, some things that have happened to us are deeply, deeply, deeply hurtful, toxic, even dangerous. And so there, while, there, while there does need to be a pursuit of peace for the benefit and health of my own soul, there also needs to be a balancing of what is healthy and safe for me in relationship with others. And, and yes, sometimes that even means that that hurt, that, that wounding needs to be uncovered or explored or mediated through and with someone who professionally can help you do that. Rather than just like, you know, uh, this person abused me for half of my life. I'm just going to kind of go knock on their door and we'll just have a conversation about healing this wound. Not recommended. Brave. Super brave. Super courageous. But, but, but let's, be, let's be aware of, let's also be, be aware and discerning. <laughs> And wise about what is safe mentally, spiritually, physically for me as I seek healing with people about situations for things that have happened, so on and so forth. Listen, <laughs> there's an other side to this coin, and this is the last point for this morning. There's another side to this coin. Sometimes handling doing our part in healing relationships is not about dealing with what has been done to us, but what we have done to others. We are, we are not simply victims, right, of someone else's decisions, words, pain, what they have inflicted upon us. We are also perpetrators. We, we are perpetrators of the wounds and the hurts in other people's lives. We, we own portions of relational disunity. We own portions of relationships that have gone like complete and opposite direction. And sometimes when we say, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends upon you, may be willing to say, I was wrong. I did this. I caused this pain. I caused this hurt. I did this thing. Because 
just like the woundedness doesn't go away with time when you're the one that's wounded, the guilt and shame of being the perpetrator also does not go away with time. Look at Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. We don't know exactly how many years it was. (laughs) But as soon as Joseph's brothers were kind of under this weight of everything, um, like Joseph was giving them a a real hard time, right? They had already met with Joseph. He had already called them spies. He had already considered throwing them in jail, not letting them go back to Egypt. And, and in a little, like, little round table huddle discussion, what do they say to each other? However many years later, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. <laughs> so, so the perpetrators, right, immediately in the moment of their distress, went to what? Oh my gosh, can you believe what I did? Can you believe what we did? Can you believe what we said? Can you believe our actions? Can you, can, this, can you believe it? All of this that is happening to us now. We're so separated from that position. We're so, we're so separated from what happened by time. But has the pain left them? Has the shame left them? Has the guilt left them? left them all of these years they have carried that with them not even at the deepest recesses of who they are because it it appeared to be immediately evident to them that's the first thing that came to mind the very first thing that came to mind when they were in that position was like we should have never done that to our brother and so sometimes What is necessary for us in dealing with the hurt and the wounds and the pain and the the breaking of relationships that has happened in our lives. Sometimes what is necessary for us is to own our responsibility in creating the wound. And that comes from no other place other than a heart of repentance. I was wrong. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. We don't have to be, we don't have to be like BFFs. We don't have to like go on vacation together. We don't have to hang out, right? Like, I get it. Like, there's just some things that restoration and redemption doesn't always restore relationship, right? But what I need you to know is that in the deepest parts of who I am, I was wrong. I repent of that wrong. Please forgive me. And anyone, I think, being honest with themselves, especially people who have carried tremendous 
tremendous burdens of guilt and shame for long periods of time, the moment of repentance, the moment of confession, right, is like, how did I carry that for so long? That was so heavy. That was so heavy. I am so glad I put that down. I am so glad I let go of that. I am so glad I'm moving on. It doesn't mean that the moment was easy. It doesn't mean necessarily that the, that the relationship is restored. Sometimes it means you have to go through a, additional steps of healing in a situation in my own life or in, my, in a relationship or even the fallout of that confession. But there is this deep soul cleansing relief of having said, I'm sorry. I repent. In one of the greatest sermons ever preached in Acts chapter 3, Peter says these words to those who are listening to him. He said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. The refreshing and cleansing work of repentance that sets us free from a life of heaviness and pain, carrying the responsibility of the hurt that we have caused in others. So clear that Joseph's life, his hurt, his betrayal did not leave him, did not leave him with time, did not leave him with success, did not, did not leave him at all. That immediately in that moment of seeing his brothers, it all snapped back into reality to him. It's also really clear that, that Joseph's brothers had been holding on to this shame and this guilt for so long. Family, listen. Time heals nothing. Jesus is the only thing that heals. Jesus is the only thing that, that heals the hurts that have been done to us. And Jesus is the only one that heals the hurts that we have done to others. There is, there is no other place that we can run than to the feet of of Jesus to see the woundedness in our souls and the woundedness caused by us healed and restored. We must pursue him. We must pursue the healing that comes through Jesus. Our communion table is a picture and symbol of healing as it is offered to us. That unable, being unable to, um, unable to fix our own condition, right? 
unable to fix our own woundedness, our own pain, our own sin, right? Unable to do all of that. Jesus took on the burden of healing our woundedness. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks to his heavenly father for the bread. And he gave it to his disciples, one of whom was about to betray him. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus likewise took the cup. And he gave thanks to his heavenly father for the cup. And then he gave the cup to his disciples. And he said, take and drink of this, all of you. This is my blood which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink of it and do it often in remembrance of me. Jesus took upon himself woundedness. In all that it entailed, in all that it was, Receiving a rememoratory symbol of what Jesus offers us on the cross. Freedom from our woundedness. Freedom from our pain. Freedom from our sin. Forgiveness given to us. If you are dealing with or experiencing immense pain or woundedness. For what has been done to you. For what has been done in you. It will be impossible for you to heal. It will be extend forgiveness. If you have not received forgiveness. If you have not come to the proverbial table of Jesus Christ, if you have not sat next to him on that upper, in that upper room on that night and received from him the gift of his body, the gift of his blood as perfectly sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. That is why we come in this moment. We come in a moment to receive a gift. Something that we could not take. Something that could only be given to us. The gift of God's forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You do not need to be a member of this church. You do not need to be a member of any church to receive communion with us this morning. 
You need only to desire the gift of forgiveness offered to you by faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. If you desire forgiveness, if you desire to receive from Jesus what he purposed in himself to give to you, then you can come and receive. We take communion here by a method called intinction, which means you break off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the cup, and then you can take communion at that time. All right? Um, you don't have to break off like the tiniest little, like, just a little, 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 little pinch, right? Because then, then you got to, one, you got to dip your whole fingers in the cup, right? That's just nasty, right? <laughs> but the other, right, like, understand this is symbolic, right? This is, this, like, we are, we are participating in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Like, I don't know about you, but I want as, like, much Jesus as I can get. Like, give me it all. Give me all the Jesus, right? All of his forgiveness, all of his love, all of his sacrifice. Within reason, don't walk away with the loaf out of my hands, but you get what I'm saying, right? Come expecting the abundance of God's gift to you rather than just like a, I'm going to take a little bit because I'm only worth a little bit. You're worth a lot of it. Um... I would like the honor and pleasure of serving Katie Communion first. And then she will help me in serving um, you all. And then we'll welcome the worship team up to receive communion then too. And they will lead us in worship.